Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York, and we begin with the latest from Ukraine. Don't be fooled by Russia's claim that it's scaling back. That's the message from the Pentagon and from Ukraine. Air raid sirens rang out overnight in both Kyiv and Chernihiv as the sound of artillery rocket fire continued. The mayor of Chernihiv confirming to CNN that Russia is intensifying rather than reducing its assault. He talked of a colossal attack on the city center with 25 residents now in hospital. We have graphic images of civilian casualties from the Kyiv suburb of Irpin. They portray an apocalyptic-style landscape where some of those lost remain unburied, lying where they fell in the streets. And it's more of the same for Mariupol. This is the first time we're actually getting a true sense of the scale of the devastation there after communication lines were destroyed. And Ukraine's President Zelensky again appealing directly to the West, speaking today to the Norwegian people. The war continues. Russia is moving new forces to our land to continue exterminating us Ukrainians. We must do more to stop the war. The first and foremost is weapons. Freedom must be armed, no less than tyranny. And all of this means the refugee crisis continues to escalate. An estimated 4 million Ukrainians have now left, more than half of them headed to Poland. Among those fleeing yesterday were 80 children with disabilities who did make it safely across the border. And in the southern city of Mykolaiv, at least 14 people died when a Russian missile hit a government building. You can take a look at this video. It shows the moment the missile struck yesterday. The city's mayor believes there are still people trapped beneath the rubble that was created. For many in the region, the violence has simply become too much to bear, as Ben Weedman reports. The blasted, burnt-out hulks of Russia's might lie on a road outside Mykolaiv. War rumbles in the distance. Lieutenant Colonel Yaroslav Chapurny doubts peace or even a pause is at hand. Russia, he says, put such a huge effort into invading Ukrainian territory, it's hard to imagine it will leave so easily. As fighting raged on the road just a few minutes' drive from here were civilians, many of them huddling in their cellars for protection scared of the fighting, but terrified of the danger if they tried to flee. This house in the nearby village of Shevchenko took a direct hit. Bombardment is less frequent now. It's just calm enough for 72-year-old Natalia to pack up and go. It's impossible to tolerate this anymore, she says. I'm already an old woman. A neighbor will drive her to nearby Mykolaiv. 
Shrapnel riddled his car and shattered the back window. I'm not afraid to die, says Natalia, but I'm just not ready. I haven't gone to confession yet. In an adjacent town, Luba shows me the potato cellar she hid in for days. It's cold here, she says. There was no electricity for two weeks. As fate would have it, she did well to stay down there. One day, a rocket landed in her backyard. Tongue in cheek, she told us the Russians left a gift for her, a gift that keeps on ticking. All right, we have to leave this spot because this rocket has not exploded. Many of the villages near the front have been largely abandoned. Only the most stubborn stay behind. Ben Wiedemann, CNN, outside Mykolaiv. So Russia claimed it would reduce military operations in Kyiv and Chernihiv, but U.S. officials say Russia's troop movement near the capital is a repositioning, not a withdrawal. And that, of course, ties with what the Russian defense minister said yesterday, that it would focus on the liberation of the Donbass region in the east. So take a look at this. Drone footage from Donetsk in the east of the country shows a heavily damaged residential building. Workers are trying to salvage what they can. No word on whether anyone was injured. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, good to have you with us. You were incredibly cautious about the outcome of the talks yesterday, and we discussed it. You were saying we have to put everything and think of the framing of how Putin can sell what's taking place as a win. Right now, whether or not troops are repositioning or moving from Kiev and, and Chernihiv, what we're seeing is that the aerial bombardment there, and it seems in the east, continues. There's two schools of thought on what's happening with the increased shelling and bombardment around Kiev at the moment. One is that Russia's using that as cover, protective cover, as it pulls the troops out and been battered in the front lines and puts in fresh reinforcements with new equipment. Or alternatively, it is using uh, artillery and, and another type of uh, uh, bomb support to pull out the troops that it's had in the front lines there and perhaps just leave a, uh, a skeleton force around Kiev and reposition those forces perhaps in the Donbass region and perhaps to the south as well. R- Russia is up against uh, is up against a number crunch. It, it doesn't have the troops to do what it wants and potentially it's taking some of those numbers away from around Kiev and it will use them uh, potentially around cities like Mariupol in the south where it where it's trying to squeeze harder on that city to force the inhabitants and the Ukrainian forces there to essentially to give up. In fact, the message from the Kremlin yesterday was very clear. When President Putin spoke with President Macron yesterday, he told Macron the way to get humanitarian relief for the people there was to get the defenders of the city to essentially surrender, put down their weapons. All all of these are contradictory positions between what Ukraine wants and what Russia wants. And we haven't seen the details of that worked out, despite the possibilities that we saw being laid out in Istanbul yesterday. Yeah, your point about the supposed humanitarian corridors and the idea that you can artificially create that if you surrender is a, is, a, is a classic. What the Russians are also saying here is that there is no way a ceasefire taking place here, though they did welcome the written demands from the Ukrainians yesterday. And the problem is, and again, Nick, you said it yesterday as well, that the conditions that are attached to any compromise here makes a solution look very, very difficult, nigh impossible at this stage. 
If you evaluate what Dmitry Peskov, President Putin's spokesman, said today about the Ukrainian uh, position yesterday at the talks in Istanbul, he said it was good that they'd begun to formulate concrete proposals. Um, to the Ukrainians, it would be easy to imagine that this sounds uh, a somewhat cynical position because the Ukrainian position and that of the United States and the European Union and so many nations that support Ukraine the Ukrainian position has been hugely clear since before the invasion began, which was don't invade. And then when the invasion began, it was now pull back, now get your troops out of Ukraine and stop and stop this uh, illegal invasion. So when Russia's uh, top spokesman says this, uh, you know, it sort of plays into the criticism and what the Kremlin was saying a month ago when they first began the first negotiations with Ukrainian officials and they blamed them then for not having a clear plan of what they wanted to do. Well, it was a country under bombardment, under assault by a much bigger army. But now, clearly, the Ukrainians have actually withstood the test of the Russian army and withstood it better than the Russian army expected. And now the Kremlin is saying, well, well done to Ukrainians for formulating a plan. But the Ukrainians have actually been able to do that despite all the assaults uh, and deaths of their civilians and all the destruction in their cities. Um, but it, it, I don't think the comments from Dmitry Peskov take us any closer to a resolution. It's, it's merely positioning by the Kremlin. Yeah, and two months ago they were saying they had no intention of invading. So how does anyone trust anyone else? Nick Robertson, thank you. Let's talk about the victims too. A survivor of the Mariupol theatre attack is speaking to CNN about her family's terrifying experience. Ukrainian officials say around 300 people were killed when Russia bombed the theatre earlier this month. Up to 1,300 civilians were using it as a shelter from the battle. Ivan Watson has one woman's heartbreaking story of survival. This was the Mariupol Drama Theater before Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, a cultural and architectural symbol of the city. And when the Russian military laid its deadly siege of Mariupol, the theater became a safe haven. Six people, like with a cat, we go on the street and Russian tanks started to shoot at us and we're running with craziness and then we go to the theater and you know what, in the theater was a lot of people, they was like, be okay, we have a food, they give us a tea uh, and they said like, you should find a place where you could, uh, like, uh, like a bed. This woman and her family recently escaped from Mariupol. My name is Maria Kutnyakova. I'm from Mariupol. I'm Maria from Mariupol. On the morning of March 16th, Maria, her mother, sister and cat joined hundreds of other civilians sheltering in the theater. Footage from March 10th shows families huddled there in the dark, feeling protected perhaps by the signs Deti, children in Russian, that volunteers posted outside the building. Shortly after arriving, Maria went to check whether an uncle who lived nearby was still alive. Now I hear in the noise of the plane, like bombs plane. We know how it's, uh, no, uh, you know, uh, how it's uh, this noise because it's bombed every day. She returned to the theater to find it destroyed. So I understand that my family in the theater and uh, everyone uh, screaming the names, you know, like Mama, Papa, Lyosha, Sasha, and I'm starting calling like Mom, Galia. Footage of the immediate aftermath shows dazed civilians covered in dust 
while the roof over the main auditorium had completely collapsed. When the theater was bombed, uh, my sister was standing with the window and the window was like blow up mm -hmm. and she's fallen down. And my mom was in another part of the theater and wall uh, fallen to her. Maria's mother and sister were wounded but survived. Your sister, is she doing all right? Um, no. Really? Uh, she's like contuse. She's got a concussion. She is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shortly after the initial strike on the theater, Maria says what was left of the building came under a fresh artillery attack. Everyone started uh, screaming that uh, uh, Sietra is on fire, mm -hmm. so we should run. And we're running, but Russians bombed it, so we ran in from the Sietra and bombs was like this, this, this. It eventually took nine days for Maria and her family to get through Russian checkpoints and reach relative safety in Ukrainian control territory. You seem very positive and upbeat right now. Uh, I understand that I'm very lucky. I'm very, you understand, like thousands and hundreds of people still in Mariupol and they bombed. They have no food, no water, uh, they have no medicine, nothing. And I'm understand I'm, I'm very lucky. Like, mm. I have my arms, I have my legs, uh, uh, what I need anymore, nothing. And your family. Yeah, and my family, my cat is in safe, so like... This is little Mushka. She's a two-year-old cat, and she survived the bombing of the Mariupol theater uh, with, with her family. And they're now headed to Western Ukraine in this bus. But no one knows how many people may have died under the rubble. Russia has denied that its forces bombed the theater, and Russian state TV recently showed what was left of it after Russian troops moved into this part of the city. Judging by the damage, the Russian reporter claims, it was bombed from the inside. He alleges there is information that Ukrainian nationalists organized a terrorist attack here, a claim that people inside the theater strongly reject. Are you angry right now? Uh, no, I want that Russian just go away. This is Ukrainian territory. I don't understand why they come in and tell me that it's not my land. They're not fighting with the army. They're fighting with every citizen. You know, they bombed hospitals, they bombed kitchen gardens, they bombed the uh, houses of uh, uh, peaceful people. They're not fighting with the armies. Maria and her family rushed to a waiting van. The driver will take them for free to western Ukraine, where Maria hopes her sister can safely recover from her injuries. Ivan Watson, CNN, Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The city of Shanghai reported nearly 6,000 new COVID cases on Tuesday, roughly 70% of China's total for the day. The city is in the third day of a two-phase lockdown. Around 9 million people have been tested for COVID-19 so far, with plans for further testing later this week, as Christy Lou Stout reports. It's day three of the massive lockdown in Shanghai, the Chinese financial capital and megacity of almost 25 million. On Tuesday, Shanghai posted around 6,000 new cases of the virus. While that number is small compared to many Western countries, China is fighting its biggest outbreak since Wuhan in early 2020, and Shanghai is the epicenter. Now, this two-stage lockdown was launched for millions of residents to undergo mass testing. At least 9 million have been tested so far. 
On Monday, half the city entered lockdown for four days. On Friday, the other half will start the process. And during this testing period, six million residents awaiting testing are not allowed to leave their homes. Public transport is suspended in lockdown areas and work at some firms and factories is suspended. Uh, The lockdown is testing the patience of residents and testing China's zero COVID strategy. To China, the policy has been a success. It's curbed previous outbreaks and saved lives. But zero COVID has come at a steep cost, especially to China's economy. On Tuesday, the Shanghai government issued a statement saying that the city will support the import of COVID treatment and vaccines, suggesting it may pursue the approval of foreign vaccines to help fight the virus. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Okay, coming up, we'll speak to the president of the World Bank on support for Ukraine, the world food crisis, and what needs to be done. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back. And a far more cautious tone to global markets today as Russia launches new attacks on key Ukrainian cities and says it sees no breakthrough yet in ceasefire talks. U.S. futures are clearly soft, as you can see there. Europe also pulling back after we saw solid gains on Tuesday, fueled by hopes that the two sides might seem closer to a ceasefire agreement. As you can see, those hopes vanquished early on in the session today. Europe seeing the biggest losses after 3% gains for German and French stocks yesterday. Oil markets also higher after two days of heavy selling pressure due to that optimism and fear, I think, too, over slower Chinese growth. Key commodities also in the green. Wheat turning higher today, but it has recently pulled back from 14-year highs. You can see on that chart there, it's currently trading near its lowest levels in a month, but still exceedingly high. And the World Food Programme is saying almost half of all Ukrainians are concerned simply about having enough food to eat. And the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State told the U.N. Security Council that hunger is set to increase around the world as a result of the Russian invasion. Putin's war is driving up the costs of providing food assistance, and the Food and Agricultural Organization, FAO, estimates that as many as 13 million more people worldwide may be pushed into food insecurity as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The war only exacerbating the global supply issues created by the pandemic, climate change and currency volatility to numb To name just a few measures, over the last two years, the World Bank has provided around $17 billion annually to help poorer nations feed themselves. And since the war in Ukraine began, the World Bank has announced more than $925 million of financial support to Ukraine as part of a $3 billion package the group is preparing for the country over the coming months. Over half a billion dollars has already been dispersed. David Marpas, president of the World Bank Group, joins us now to discuss. David, always great to have you on the show. We'll talk about Ukraine first. Pledges are one thing, but actually getting cash into the hands of those that need it is the real test. And whether it's the World Bank or donations to the trust or officials in Ukraine, you've managed to do this incredibly quickly. And I think that emphasizes the need too. Hi, hi, Julia. It certainly does. The needs are massive of the 
people of Ukraine, for example, the recent money that we put out was able to help pay hospital workers and the pensions for the elderly. Uh, so that's some of the uses uh, that are needed. Um, we were able to do it very quickly, which I was happy with, in part because we'd had an ongoing relationship with Ukraine and we were able to add on. It was a supplemental. Uh, that's not always available around the world, but it was available in this case and it could be enlarged. And other donors made that possible as well. So I'm happy with that as a starting point, but the needs are massive. Yeah, I know you were there in, in 2019. So you, in many ways, you had a sort of long run in or at least some time into this to understand the situation and, and the requirements. Do you have any sense of timing on more, more cash to them? We're doing two things on that. One is an assessment of the of the Ukraine's needs, but also the, the regional needs. Uh, and that's that's useful because it it, uh, we, there needs to be a process where donors understand what they're putting money into. Uh, some of it will be uh, structural re reconstruction of infrastructure, for example. Uh, and then uh, in the, in the uh, near term, meaning over the next one, two, three, four weeks, uh, we can continue the current process uh, as as donors, this would be often Western Europeans, the U.S., uh, Japan, and uh, advanced economies put money into the trust fund. It's able to disperse uh, relatively quickly directly to the government of Ukraine. So that's so we envision uh, both a, 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 a near-term process that helps with the cash, uh, and then. Uh, as the months go by, we hope to get into a reconstruction process and we're beginning the preparation for that. You know, we spoke to the finance minister of Ukraine this week and they are incredibly grateful for all the financial support and aid that they're getting. But they're also having to issue war bonds, very short term debt, very high interest rate debt in order to meet things like pensions, in addition to the money that they're being given, it just seems incredibly unfair at this moment, in addition to, as you said, the sort of rebuilding costs that they have to face and the displacement costs of, of people too. It's a lot. Yes, and in addition, they've been making some payments on their debt. Uh, right. Markets have been somewhat surprised by that. You know, the, the price of the debt has fallen a lot on the on the view that uh, that there would be interruptions. But so far, uh, those payments are made along with the very heavy social uh, social burden payments. And so Ukraine's looking for ways to uh, uh, to raise funds. And some are some are more expensive than others. We've uh, we've been happy a chunk of ours uh it can is grants uh and the trust funds are particularly valuable from that standpoint they can put grant aid in which is the most useful kind yeah so important to understand um there are significant spillover effects david to cereals agriculture in particular, given the importance of this region, not just Ukraine, of course, but Russia too. And we've been hearing that there's challenges for Ukrainian farmers, the fears that even if they can harvest the crops and actually get the the harvest that they anticipate, and we've seen in the past, um, they're being prevented from doing so by, by Russian troops. Have you, have you heard similar? 
Uh, yes, logistics is a is a big problem. It's always it's always been a problem for Ukraine because of the the muddy season and the uh, the insufficiency of the infrastructure. Uh, World Bank has worked with them on that in terms of roads and railroads, uh, and but th of course now those many of those are impassable uh, so that will reduce their their uh, access to markets um, uh, another factor is the black sea itself the shipping mm. has uh, has been greatly reduced uh, both russian shipping and ukrainian shipping uh, so that's one of the factors in the reduction in the uh, output of wheat and and the grains that you mentioned um, one thing I'll note, Julia, is markets adjust and the global economy adjusts. If we look at Ukraine and, and uh, Russia combined, they're roughly 2% of world GDP. Uh, and they, they, let's say there's a 20% reduction uh, uh, of, of, from them. That's 0.4% of, of, of world GDP. World GDP goes up and down year by year based on rainfall in other parts of the world. I'm just back from West Africa and there's been a severe drought. One thing that would help them a lot is rainfall because then they would be able to produce the normal wheat amounts that they do and other grains, rice uh, and uh, uh, a variety of crops. So uh, all I'm saying is markets look ahead and economies adjust and they're pretty good at adjusting. One of the things that we can do that the world I think should do and I call for them to do is to reduce the trade barriers uh, that are blocking trade uh, and allow more market access. This this is particularly important for the advanced economies to allow more market access for the agricultural products from the poorer economies. I've, it, it, I was in Senegal. They produce a lot of peanuts uh the the u.s has major obstacles to peanuts that's uh, to peanut imports and that drives up the price in the u.s and it uh, it doesn't allow the crop in and that's true around the world another one i'll mention is nigeria it's blocking rice from benin it blocks cement from ghana uh, and these are really costly barriers that hurt the people of both countries we know that trade is beneficial to two sides and one of the things i hope the world can do now is find a balance between the desire for independence in terms of markets for example the u.s wants independent peanut markets uh but uh also the balance of the benefits that come from trade and from diversified trade it's such an important point, and I think it's a, a lesson that I hope we've learned following the 2007-2008 crisis in particular. You can exacerbate a problem dramatically by export restrictions and by hoarding wherever you are in the world. You're concerned about food security for your people, but you can make the situation far worse with those actions. So we pray uh, countries don't follow that route um, to, to your bigger point. I want to ask you about Afghanistan, David, before, um, before I let you go because I know you're pressed for time too. You've put, put four projects in Afghanistan worth $600 million, I believe, on hold over the decision by the Taliban uh, to ban girls from returning to, to public high schools. Um, to me, it's two tragedies. The money's required. Children, women in particular, clearly need educating the same way that, that, that men do. Can I, can I just get your comment and your views on this, David? 
yes. Well, it's a it's a tragedy and a back uh, a backtrack uh, by Taliban and and very harmful. We we worked through the Afghanistan uh, Reconstruction Trust Fund, ARDF which is a group of donors that are operating in uh, in Afghanistan through UN agencies. And so, as I understand it, the donors are reviewing and have stopped uh, the, the education or, or recognized the, the grave setback uh, that occurred, I guess, last week. Um, and so there's a there's a, uh, uh, a a management by the donors of the ARDF of the, that trust fund uh, to try to figure out what the what's most useful uh, to try to find to, to most useful for the people of Afghanistan. And you can you can uh, zero in and say what would be good for girls in Afghanistan in a situation where Taliban told them not to come to school. Uh, and I, I know the UN is. Uh, focused on that and the donors are focused on that and we're we're trying to facilitate uh their decisions and outcomes on that we've been we we uh are have been putting uh we we help with the finances of that trust fund or with the with the with the money the donors put in the money the world bank uh helps facilitate their process on this in afghanistan it's a big setback yeah, and it's an important message to send. I will say the Taliban leader said that all girls would be allowed to return to the classrooms later this month, and, um, and here we are. So we pray for action on that, I think, too. David, always great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you Thank for the work you, you're all doing. Thank you. David Marpas, president of the World Bank Group there. Okay, coming up after the break, Russia's false promises, punishing attacks instead of pullbacks. With Kyiv and the city of Chernihiv suffering through a night of heavy shelling, we'll speak to a former Ukrainian defence minister about what he sees coming next. Stay with us. Welcome back. Russia today saying there has been no breakthrough yet in talks with Ukraine and that much work lies ahead before any ceasefire deal is reached. This comes as the U.S. says it sees no evidence that Russia is reducing its military activity around Kyiv and the city of Chernihiv, as Moscow has promised. Washington says Russia is merely repositioning, not withdrawing forces. Kyiv coming under heavy rocket and artillery attack overnight, with intense fighting reported in the northern suburbs. The mayor of Chernihiv says his city is reeling after a, quote, colossal attack. They are saying about reducing intensity, they actually have increased the intensity of strikes. Um, yes, uh, today we've had a colossal mortar attack on the centre of Chernihiv. 25 people have been wounded and are now in hospital. They're all civilians. So whenever Russia says something, this needs to be checked carefully. At least 25 people were taken to hospital there. Officials say the city currently has no electricity, water, heat or gas. Andrei Zagorokniuk joins us now. He served as Ukraine's Minister of Defence during the first year of President Zelensky's term. Andrei, good to have you on the show. Given everything that you've seen in the past month and the past 24 hours, do you believe Russia's serious about peace? Uh, no, unfortunately not. And uh, this is absolutely clear. Uh, actually, they didn't promise peace this time. What they promised is that they would be withdrawing forces from Chernihiv, which is in the uh, northeast of country, and Kiev, which is capital, is in the north. 
Uh, that, as we call, operational directive, so that area of the fighting for them was uh, quite unsuccessful. And uh, they couldn't take Kiev. That was the prime goal for them from the day one of the invasion. And they couldn't take even Chernihiv, which is a much smaller city, uh, but it was on the way to Kiev. So they were considering to take it as a sort of and turn it into a kind of a base. And they couldn't do uh, neither of those. And uh, for them, it's, uh, it's a problem, of course. So now they're trying to explain it somehow. And uh, they, they're saying that uh, they're redirecting everything to the east. Indeed, east is now the, the most uh, important area for them, like uh, because it's uh, they need to they're trying to achieve at least something, and they have a substantial amount of forces on the east of the country. But um, all the forces which they are withdrawing from the north are mainly for the what we call the recovery, which means that after heavy losses, they need to re refill with uh, supplies, with people, change some personnel, change some command uh, uh, personnel, and, and and so on. But uh, we don't believe that they change their strategic objective, uh, not for a second, to be honest. So you're saying what we're seeing is a tactical retreat due yeah, to failure exactly. in, in Chernihiv and, and Kiev. So Absolutely. could we say at this moment then perhaps, and I say it very cautiously, that the, the greatest danger to Kiev perhaps has passed? Uh, we will see, because indeed at the moment uh, Kiev is in a much safer situation than it has been in the beginning of the war, because Kiev has uh, substantially reinforced its defense. Uh, Kiev is uh, firmly controlling um, two-thirds of its, of its like borders, and um, Kiev slowly trying to return to normal life. So people already going out somewhere, and uh, and uh, there's some people going to the offices and, and, and so on and so on. But uh, we do understand that Russia will never consider the, the task as completed uh, unless they uh, either fail or uh, attempt to take Kiev again. So uh, obviously for them would be uh, a big failure to admit that they not uh, haven't been able to do that. So so perhaps they're still considering these plans. But um, as we discussed last time, uh, that would be extremely difficult for them, and we strongly not advise them to to approach Kiev again. To your point, and the Russian defense minister said this yesterday that the main priority now is the liberation of the Donbass region, and obviously we saw violence there overnight. You have a, a sense, and, and it's complicated because there are separatist parts of the Donbass region and have been since the invasion of Crimea back in, in 2014. How easy, in your mind, is it for Russia to achieve, in the defence minister's words, the liberation of Donbass? Yeah, first of all, liberation. Liberation is something where people are given freedom. Uh, in this case, it's, it's actually the other way around because uh, we are uh, the, the Ukraine was known in, around the world as a, as a country where democracy was an established, uh, you know, established fact, uh, but not in the case of Russia. And they're trying to essentially that's occupation, and that's what they're trying to do. And uh, we haven't seen any desire of the people of the of the uh, territories in, in east of Ukraine, which were controlled by uh, Ukrainian government for all this time to switch to Russian occupation or switch to Russian government. There was, nobody wanted that. And as you could see with Mariupol, which is also part of uh, Donbass region, um, people people are ready to do, to, 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 to go through terrible experiences, but they still oppress the occupation because nobody wants to live under Russia. Um, so that what they're trying to do, they, they of course, they have some uh, forces there. They have proxy forces, which call themselves separatists and are known in the, in the world as separatists, but they are uh, supported by um, 
by Russian government, they are funded by Russian government, they are run by Russian officers, and uh, they are part of the Russian command and control. So in uh, military language, we, we call proxy forces. So it means that they are like independent, but not, not independent at all in reality. So uh, yes, they have, uh, they have quite a bit of them there. And they reinforce that uh, uh, those forces with the Russian regular ones. Uh, so yes, it's a, it's a very serious challenge for Ukraine uh, in Donbass right now. But it's uh, the, the contact line was uh, uh, 415 kilometers, so that's a very long area to uh, encircle. So actually, yes, they are, they will they will they are having troubles there doing this as well. Um, but uh, the reason they approached uh, that region is because they announced from the very beginning that uh, the liberation, again, as of uh, Donbass, is their prime goal. Mm -hmm. For some reason, they started to attack all other different other regions and, uh, and throw rockets all around Ukraine. But um, since they couldn't achieve any objectives there, they're kind of returning to that, those rhetoric. Sorry. I th yeah, no, I understand. I, I think for most of us, we're trying to understand a couple of things, many things, but, but in the short term, at least, um, how President Zelensky and you can give us your wisdom from having been part of this government as the defence minister, how you trust anything President Putin says, how you trust anything that the negotiators say. And does the first thing that has to be achieved here, ceasefire, humanitarian corridors, and can you negotiate while troops are still on Ukrainian territory? Uh, the word trust is not something which we apply in dealing with Russians and neither neither our allies, US included and UK included, uh, because they say one thing and they do something completely different. As you just, uh, you just seen before, there's been heavy shellings in suburbs of Kiev, in Chernihiv, right after they said about dramatic decreasing of the military presence there. Um, and that happens over and over again. This has been for years. So uh, like when they had war in Chechnya, uh, the most terrible bombings of uh, Grozny uh, was right after the president of Russia announced that they are stopping it. Um, that was just before the new year of, 2000, of 1996. And uh, so, so there's been cases like this over and over again. We signed Minsk agreements with them where the ceasefire was the main objective, like objective number one, and the ceasefire never stopped. Uh, and that been like uh, 2015. First one was mm. in 2014. Second one was 2015. Um, in 1994, Ukraine signed a so-called Budapest Memorandum, where Russia guaranteed that it's not going to invade Ukraine and, and uh, compromise its territorial integrity. And you see what happens. So um, no, you cannot trust what the Russians are saying. And also, they're saying a lot of things for their own propaganda, uh, calling us Nazis or something like that, which is which is total garbage but 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 still there andre i, no. I, I know history is uh, no. littered with broken promises i i have one minute left and i want to ask you i think an important question based on what you said about a lack of trust in western leaders too which i think is important do you see the only way this ending and i won't say winning because i don't think anybody wins in this situation with so much devastation but is for ukraine to hold out and to continue to rebuff Russia's advances and forces and aggression? Uh, we can do that. We have our uh, people are uh, having a very strong uh, opinion and very strong will to uh, to remain as, the, as, an, as, a, as, a, as an independent, as a sovereign nation. Uh, there's absolutely no desire from 
anyone to 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 be under Russian control at all. Uh, we value our freedom, so yes, people are absolutely determined, regardless of what's happening, to keep on fighting. The question is whether we're going to have resources for that. And uh, here we're talking to our allies, and we know that, that we have support from the United States. There's been mm, very strong statements from uh, Biden administration, uh, particularly last week when Biden was in Poland. Uh, there's a, a lot of support coming from U.S., from U.K. Um, so if uh, if we assume that that uh, helps us to uh, get Russia to the point that when they when they understand that uh, that uh, their attempts are completely unsuccessful. Uh, yeah, we can, we can, we can do that absolutely. Andre, great to chat to you once again. Thank you for Thank your time. Stay you. safe, please. The former defence minister of Ukraine. There. Stay with CNN. More to come. Welcome back. The German government has issued an early warning on energy supplies, saying there could be shortages of natural gas if a standoff with Moscow leads to Russia closing the taps. Russia says it wants to be paid for gas in rubles instead of dollars or euros and could cut off supplies if that doesn't happen. Claire Sebastian joins me now to discuss. Claire, great to have you with us on this. The German economy, of course, when he heard that rubles ask, said it was blackmail. How would this work in terms of German reprioritization and perhaps rationing of supplies? Yeah, so Julia, in terms of rationing, we're not there yet. The, the, the sort of crisis system that Germany has enacted today, we're in the first stage of that. It's called an early warning. After that would come a, an alarm if they, they start to get more concerned about gas shortages. And after that, an emergency. And under the emergency situation, that is when they could start to, to trigger rationing. But they are trying not to get to that stage. The German economy ministry has, has today asked consumers and businesses with immediate effect to reduce their energy consumption. This is the big picture here. There is no immediate alternative supplier to Russia. They simply cannot find a solution if Russia turns off the tap. So the only way to cope with that in the short term is to reduce demand. And that is really what Europe is grappling with today. And and Germany in particular as Russia's biggest energy customer. Yeah, and that's the key. Their vulnerability here is huge. And I think there should be campaigns all over the world, quite frankly, to use less energy for many reasons, including what we're seeing today. Um, The German Council of Economic Advisers, the wise men, have warned that if there was a cut to gas supplies, it raises uh, substantial recessionary risk and double digit inflation. The consequences, Claire, for their vulnerability are huge. I mean, this, Julia, really is Germany's Achilles heel. Russia accounts for more than half of their gas supply. And the the German Council of Economic Advisers has today cut their growth forecast for this year for Germany by more than half, from 4.6% to 1.8%. They're warning that inflation could average around 8% per month this year, even hitting double digits through the summer. We actually got uh, the first reading on on March inflation for Germany from official statistics today. That was in at 7.3%, which according to ING is the highest in 48 years. So this is an extremely tricky moment uh, for Germany and and by extension for the European Union. Germany is the largest economy in the European Union. They are all vulnerable uh, if Russia does use this leverage and reduce gas supplies. Yeah, more global consequences. Claire Sebastian, great to have you back. Thank you for that. Okay, after the break, back on Earth, an American astronaut and his cosmonaut colleagues land in a Russian capsule. More on the international effort after this. Touchdown. 
Touchdown confirmed at six. Touchdown earlier today, NASA astronaut Mark Vanderhei safely returned to Earth after a record 355 days in space. Getting used to gravity again, he was lifted out of this Soyuz capsule with two cosmonauts in a rare show of American-Russian cooperation amid the broader global tensions back on Earth. Rachel Crane watched the landing and joins us now. Rachel, great to have you with us. Didn't the Russians produce a spoof video where they left him behind and were sort of waving goodbye? Good news that didn't happen and he made it back. That's correct, Julia. That's one of the reasons that, you know, folks around the world and particularly at NASA, they're all breathing a sigh of relief that this landing went off flawlessly without a hitch, despite, you know, that highly edited video that was tweeted out by Dmitry Rogozin, actually, the head of Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, suggesting that they could possibly ab- abandon Vanderhei on the International Space Station. But as we saw today, that is not what happened. All things were nominal. Everything went off without a hitch. We saw Vander High being helped out of that Soyuz space capsule, giving a thumbs up, smiling. Uh, there was a big celebration. So following uh, following that moment where the astronauts, uh, the, uh, Vander, Vander High and his fellow cosmonauts were taken out of the capsule, you know, they went through the traditional uh, paces of going through the health and safety checks before uh, Vander High made his way back to Houston, Texas. So that's the journey that he's making right now, following this four-hour epic journey back from the International Space Station. And as you pointed out and as you, you know, uh, were highlighting, there is a stark contrast between the cooperation that is happening in space versus the, you know, the geopolitical tensions that are happening here on Earth. Space remains one of the last, is one of the last remaining diplomatic links between the U.S. and Russia. And a very, you know, uh, poignant moment happened on Tuesday where uh, cosmonaut Skaplerov handed over the command of the International Space Station to NASA astronaut uh, Thomas Marshburn. And he said, and he highlighted that while there's problems here on Earth, in orbit, they are one crew, even calling his fellow crewmates, who, of course, included American citizens, NASA astronauts, his brothers and sisters. So, Julia, of course, if only we were all brothers and sisters here on Earth. Yeah, Julia? if only we could mirror that on Earth. Um, very quickly, because we have around uh, 30 seconds left, the three that came home were replaced by three cosmonauts that all arrived in the yellow suits with the blue strips. And a lot was made in the media that this was a sign, a symbol of perhaps support for Ukraine. The Russians dismissed it. Rachel, what do we think? You know, the the official line here, one of the asked, the cosmonauts was asked about this, and he said there was just yellow, uh, extra yellow fabric in the factory. Pretty cryptic response, so hopefully they'll be spilling the tea uh, on that in the near future, and we'll get a more official response or maybe a more yes. truthful response, Julia, because we're all wondering. Yes. Sometimes yellow is yellow, and sometimes otherwise. We make of it what we will. Rachel Crane, thank you. That's it for the show. Stay with CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.